Well, it is good uh, to see you, and I'm delighted uh, to see uh, any of you who are our guests today. Uh, some of you I haven't met personally, and I look forward to doing that after the service. We are moving rapidly toward the end of Mark's gospel, the biography that Mark uh, wrote of the Lord Jesus, and we're in uh, chapter 12. We're only going to look at one passage in this uh, chapter, and if you would, would you stand for prayer, and then the reading of God's word. Father, the Lord Jesus told us he is the great farmer who sows seed. And so we ask that the soil of our hearts and minds might be receptive to his word. And receiving that word, we might bring forth a harvest 30, 60, 100 fold. And with it, the good works that bring glory to the Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are no other commandments greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and all the understanding and all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. You may take your seats. Well, it had been one of those weeks, the urgent and the important had become one thing. And those deadlines that had been looming had all arrived. And you're going to have to work through much of the weekend. Your stress levels are through the roof, and you awaken in the morning to thoughts replaying some of the events that had happened earlier in the week. Your boss is not happy with your work. He was biting and sarcastic, and you left the meeting feeling once again deeply unappreciated. The evening uh, uh, before, a close friend had called, and the conversation went deep, and then uh, you were chided, and you just hadn't had time really to sort out what had taken place, whether you deserve those words or not. It's Saturday, and you promised to help with the garden. And so you and another family member uh, go outside, but you have different ways of doing things. They pull and you push. Uh, you know you should flex, but you, know, you snap like a rubber band and you fail to love them. What do you do when you fail to love? Do you say nothing? 
just move on like nothing has happened? Or do you offer all the reasons you might to justify why uh, responding that way was actually, well, it was acceptable. Everyone should understand. Or do you make an apology that doesn't actually involve an admission of wrongdoing? Or maybe you promise never to do it again, and maybe even try to do something nice to make up for it. But the damage is done. They're hurt, and maybe you feel bad. Now, I've done all these things. I have a lot of experience actually doing all of them, and I want to tell you that none of them repair a relationship. But even more importantly, they fall far short of what God commands. Now, Jesus has something to say to me and to you about this, about love. And it's very far-reaching, and when it's understood within the context of his life and ministry, uh, it is empowering. It's the greatest commandment. Now, at the very end of chapter 11 and through chapter 12, and we didn't read all of that, of course, uh, Jesus comes to the temple for the third and last time. And the religious leaders are trying to ensnare him in his words. They have formulated very uh, careful questions uh, for him, confident they're going to trap him. And uh, after several of these exchanges, we read that one of the teachers of the law, who was really impressed with the answers Jesus uh, gave, uh, uh, came to speak to him. He was, unlike the others, not hostile toward uh, Jesus. And he asked him this, what is the fundamental principle of the law? The one commandment on which everything else Hangs. He's not asking which laws need uh, to be obeyed. No, he's asking a question that uh, only makes sense in terms of the rabbis, the teachers of that day. They distinguish between lighter and heavier commands, uh, between smaller and greater uh, commands. Um, they counted the commands in the Torah in the Old Testament, and there were 613 248 were positive commands, and the other 365 were things you were forbidden to do. And there was great effort in sorting through all these commands uh, to try to trace them back to certain principles. It's kind of like if you know the larger catechism in the confession, the confession takes each of the Ten Commandments and pulls underneath it all sorts of other instruction and commands in the Bible. Well, the rabbi's motive in doing this is more than simply intellectual. Um, William Lane, a very able New Testament scholar, uh, uh, puts a spotlight on it when he writes, the question and its assumptions stems from the piety of human achievement. In other words, the man wants to establish his record of obedience to the law. He wants to be sure that he's working on that one principle, uh, that if he does it, will build his record the fastest and ensure that he is uh, acceptable. He has God's smile and approval. And Jesus' answer is as sweeping as it is simple. We must love. Now, Jesus is speaking ancient wisdom 
God's wisdom revealed in the scripture, and he summons us to live before an audience of one, to love the one, and to love the one by loving others. Jesus summons us to live before an audience of one. The scribe asked for a commandment, and Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is what the Jewish people call the Shema. That's just the Hebrew word for hear, the first word in the line. And it's like the Lord's Prayer of the Apostles' Creed to us. It was something that every uh, Jew uh, uh, recited twice a day. It says this, that the Lord God, he's exclusively unique. There is no one else worthy of everything. He's above all, and he must be loved by us more uh, than all. Not only more than all other people, but above all our desires, our dreams, above our thoughts, and our opinions. He alone is worthy of our total devotion, affection, and commitment. And we find ourselves in a very uh, different time than those who recited this in Jesus' day. Um, We no longer perceive reality as being centered in God, the one who completes and fulfills us. Today, the real one is me. Instead of the Lord, whose name is I am, the real I am is myself. God has no weight for modern people. Now, Becky Pippert captures something of this in a conversation she had after, during a, a talk she'd been invited to give uh, on the topic of vice and virtue. And there was a woman in the audience who objected when she said, vices such as pride and envy debase and destroy our humanity, whereas virtues like compassion and humility strengthen us and make us better. And the woman exclaimed with a look of horror, don't you see, by saying this, you're suggesting that some things are wrong and other things are right. Personally, I prefer to be uh, compassionate, but I would never impose that on someone else. And she retorted, "I I see, according to your approach, if I prefer pizza, but not child abuse, it's just because that's my uh, preference. But, hey, if somebody else prefers sausage and child abuse, well, that's fine, uh, too. And she shuddered, and she said, I don't think child abuse is correct under any circumstances. But we must be very careful not to be intolerant. And she replied, but you're intolerant of abuse. You just said so. Why do you resist saying some things that you know deep within you are right and other things are are wrong. Why don't you say that when you know they are? And she said, because I've been taught that a thinking person must be open-minded. And Becky responded, well, I remember when one of my graduate students said the trouble with being too open-minded is that your brains fall out. (laughs) See, we live in an age where that seems to have happened. We live with an enlightened intolerance of the things that destroys. They're just dismissed as being narrow-minded or out-fashioned or prudish. You see, without a massively weighty God, it's not possible for us 
to say that some things are actually right and wrong, that there is some objective reality and objective morality. And without a weighty God, we uh, uh, don't really know what it is to love another person. And our failures will seem trivial uh, to us. We won't recognize them for what they are. This is what C.S. Lewis was getting at in The Abolition of Man when he, when he wrote, For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. And the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. For the modern, the cardinal problem is how to conform reality to our wishes. And the solution is a technique. Let me say it again. If God is not the weightiest reality for us, and we are, then we will never have any clear understanding of what it is to love another human being. Now, Jesus not only said the Shema, but he lived it. He lived his whole life for an audience of one. The Lord God revealed in Scripture. The entire record of Jesus' life and the four biographies we have show that Jesus was radically oriented toward the one. He conformed his living to the reality of the Lord God. Just how much does God weigh for you? How much gravity does he actually have in your life? How much compared to the opinions of other people? How, how heavy is he when he's placed on the scales with your uh, dreams and desires and plans? You will never have the life that you desire. You'll never experience the fulfillment that God intends unless you embrace this ancient wisdom of conforming your life to the reality of the one and by loving the one. Jesus speaks the ancient wisdom of Scripture uh, when he says we are to love the one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now these distinct aspects of us really can't be separated. The Bible doesn't suggest that we have three or four uh, parts. We're not like a chair that has legs and a seat and a back and and armrest. That, and now the Bible uh, consistently teaches uh, we are one united being, but each of these words is a window on something that's true of us, that's true of all of us. When Jesus says uh, we are to love God, we're to do that out of our hearts. The preposition means from the source of, not, not by means of. In the Bible, the heart's not the organ that pumps blood, like we were taught in school, uh, nor is it uh, romantic affection or uh, even the bond of friendship. Uh, no, it is the center of our being which controls our feelings, our desires, and our passions. It's where religious commitment takes root. It's where our ultimate loyalties reside. It's where we decide for or against God. And when we speak of the heart, in the way the Bible does, it, it, it's, we're talking about the thing from which everything that defiles us comes out of. 
whether it's our evil thoughts or our deeds, uh, our unbelief. Whatever dehumanizes us arises out of our hearts. And we must love God with all our souls. Now, God himself breathed life into Adam. He's the one who breathes out our souls into us. And that's the source of the vitality of life. It's the motivating power that brings the strength of will. Together with the heart, the soul determines our actions. We're to love God with all our energies. And we must love him with our minds. Our mind is the faculty of perception and reflection, and it directs our opinions, our values, and our judgments. And we're to love God with the full extent of our intellectual capacities. Now, they vary, but there's no room for laziness with what capacities God has given us. No one, for example, who has a college degree should have a kindergarten understanding of the Christian uh, faith. They should mature in their, with their mind and understanding uh, Christianity. The first Christians were tough-minded. They not only outlived the pagans, but they outthought them. And we must love God with all our strength, meaning all our physical capacities, and that includes our possessions. God, the one, is worthy of all of us, and he lays claim to every fiber and facet of our being. Now, in college, uh, I came to Christ just before I went to college, and in college, among the Christians uh, that uh, I knew, we would ask one another, how are you doing with God? And we would gauge that by whether or not we uh, set aside time uh, to spend with God alone in prayer and and Bible study, and, and whether we partook of various Christian activities. It was several years later listening to someone teach that I learned that how I'm doing with God needs to be measured by how I'm doing in relating to other people. I was so struck uh, by that, uh, brought under such conviction uh, that I pledged to pray uh, every day that God would show me how to actually love other people and he would enable me to do so. For 10 years, every day, I prayed that prayer. I don't know why I stopped, but I know I prayed it every day for 10 uh, years. This is what's remarkable about what Jesus is saying to this scribe. The scribe wants a single principle to live by, and Jesus gives him another. He's joining these two commandments. And he, when he says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment singular greater than these. Now, no rabbi had ever said this. Although, of course, these two commandments were well known and discussed. They're, they're in the Old Testament. They're, they're not something new. But what Jesus is saying is we are to love the one by loving the other. We're to love our neighbors in the way that we love ourselves. And this is the evidence that we actually love God. The the apostles repeat this and develop this for us numerous times. Uh, John, in his uh, letter, writes, By this we know love, 
that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Have you closed your heart to someone? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Paul, in a similar vein, writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, if we're honest, we know we don't do this. We just don't measure up to this. And we have a very strong desire to scale down these demands, the demands of love, and make it easier to establish a record of our piety, to assure ourselves that we're doing all that God requires of us. Jesus is not asking for 30% not for 50% on every other Tuesday. He's asking for 100% from us. And we scale this down uh, by uh, breaking apart these two commandments and substituting spiritual activities for how we actually treat others. Or we scale it down by comparing ourselves uh, to another person saying, my record of doing this is better than yours. See, if we're honest, we admit we don't love God or others as Jesus speaks of. We're just not consistent. We don't do this to the extent that we should. And if we're going to grow in love, we have to abandon the project that this scribe is engaged in. And this this project of wanting to justify ourselves before God. That project is very subtly rooted in every human heart. We want to earn our acceptance with God. No matter what we confess about the orthodox way in which we actually are made right with God. We must receive as a gift Christ's perfect record of keeping this command to love God and love other people. Jesus is the only person who's ever kept this uh, commandment. He did it as a boy in the ordinariness of relating to his parents and his brothers and sisters in a large family. For you boys and girls, you need to think about that. All the challenges you may face in relating to a sibling or perhaps to a parent. Jesus did it in the carpentry shop with his dad. Uh, as a a man working in that shop with his customers. In the three years of his public ministry, he loved his disciples, the crowds, the people he met who were in great need, and those who opposed him, who hated him. 
even those who crucified him. He loved God with all his heart. The Father was the very center of Jesus' life. He was totally loyal to the Father. He deferred to the Father. He looked to the Father for every cue in his speech and living. He loved God with all the energies of his life. He loved God in all his understanding, his understanding, his grasp of Scripture, even as a child astounded, uh, the learned. And he loved God with all his physical capacities, even dying on the cross in our place. And Jesus offers you his perfect record of righteousness. And he's offering to take your record of incomplete obedience. He's offering to exchange his full obedience for all your failures. And to do this, to receive this, you must abandon all the effort to establish a record of your own and receive his record as a gift. Every time we try to establish our own record of obedience, every time that we fail, and what we do is we say, I'm going to do better the next time, and that's all that we uh, do, Uh, what we're doing is we're actually turning away from Christ. When you fail, you and you've come to see it, you need to humble yourself and confess that in fact you have not done what God asked. You need to acknowledge the wickedness of your rebellion against God as well as the way you've injured the iniquity, the evil that you've done, not just to God, but to other uh, people. And then go to the cross for this exchange. Give him your failure and receive again his perfect record of righteousness. Then you need to do one more thing. You need to ask that you might receive the grace to live out what's required. Well, how do you do that? We have to depend on on Christ living in us. I often, in my duties, sense my utter inadequacy to love someone. They're in a situation I've never experienced. And I come to them, and as I pray, I, I often ask before I see them, Oh, Lord, love them through me. Love them through me. You see, Christ can unite our hearts all the, all the doubt, all the mixture of motives that we have in our relationships with others. Now, Christ, his life can animate our own. He will live through us. Uh, he alone can pry our uh, white knuckles off our possessions and make us generous people with our time, with our talents, with our treasure. Only Christ uh, uh, can overcome our selfishness, our uh, preoccupation to set us uh, free from our constant playing to other people. Whether it is we want them to notice and admire us or whether uh, we're seeking their approval and need their acceptance. Only Christ can set us free from the fear of being rejected uh, by others. 
We must obey, but we must obey with the energy and power of the life of Christ in the dependency of faith. Just how do you do that? Well, you need to receive and abide in God's love. You need to say yes to God. Yes, I believe that in Christ dying on the cross that you have loved me. That you have taken my place. And then perhaps you need to get still. And in faith listen. And hear God say to you, I love you. I love you. You need to get out of your own head and listen to God and listen to him say, I love you. And then ask God to grant you Paul's prayer in Ephesians. Ask him to give you an expanded understanding, a greater vision of the extent of his love for you. And then receive this love. And abide in this. Love for others will flow out of your life in increasing measure as you experience the love of God. As you are more and more persuaded that you, in fact, are the object of his love. And when you know that love, you'll let go of the need uh, to have a record. The need to defend your record when you fail uh, to love. The need uh, to prove your record by what you do. Perhaps by trying to make up uh, for a wrong without actually admitting the evil of what you've done. Jesus looks at the scribe and he loves him. And he says, you are near to the kingdom of heaven. The scribe isn't in the kingdom of heaven. The man actually puts himself on the same level as Jesus. And what Jesus is summoning him to is to give up his self-rule. To surrender to God and to follow Christ himself. These are Jesus' last public words. And Mark intends for us as we hear them to respond to them. Will you follow Jesus? Will you humble yourself and put your trust in him and rely upon him alone for your standing with God and others? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, it is so hard for us to love. It's so hard for us not to justify our failures to love. It's so, so hard for us to see that how we treat others, the poorest treatment we give to someone in our life is actually the real measure of how much we love you. Oh, Lord God, we come and we bring ourselves to you now. Work in us. Draw us to yourself. Cause us to surrender in faith and to receive once again his right.